Uh, beloved, one of the uh, nuanced details that was a particular blessing to me in uh, my marketplace ministry opportunity that I briefly shared before when I was in having dinner, business dinner, in uh, Milan with four Italian customers and one French colleague. As I mentioned before, I had the blessing to give a high-level picture of the gospel, presentation of the gospel. Uh, these men were physical men and kind of outdoors oriented, so uh, we got onto the subject of uh, a young earth and even the Grand Canyon and a little interpretation of scripture from Genesis. And one of the things that I mentioned at that point was I let them know, and this is kind of a, I don't always do this when I'm evangelizing, but you know, I'd say that for me, scripture is my authority, and so that is my worldview, and I don't presume other people have the same authority or the same worldview, but this is where, from where I am coming. And it was interesting, one of the Italian customers says, well, according to whose interpretation? And it's interesting, you might get a question like that, and when I get a question like that here in the States, it's usually coming from a certain kind of context, from an American kind of bent. Uh, but in this case, in the land of Italy, which is, of course, ensconced in Roman Catholicism, even as he kind of elaborated a little bit, he was coming more from the standpoint of the Roman Catholic Church, which basically tells the Roman Catholics that the interpretation is the responsibility of the church. It's not your responsibility. It's not even really your privilege. So it was a wonderful opportunity to talk about the clarity of Scripture, the binding authority of Scripture, and the responsibility that every person, whether they are a believer or not, has in their response to the Word of God, to God who speaks through the Bible. I talked about in uh, 1 Timothy how Paul says we are to all be, all those who are in Christ are to be approved workmen or approved workwomen, handling accurately the word of truth. I referenced the noble-minded Bereans who receive the word of God with eagerness and examine the scriptures daily to confirm whether or not these things were so. And so that was one of the things that was fleshed out in this wonderful opportunity that I had there at that time. And that makes me think of even the examples in scripture that we have of people handling the word of God. We can think of, of course, no better example than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when the risen Christ appeared on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples. And beginning, as Luke tells us, in Luke 24, beginning with Moses, he explained to them all that God had laid out. So the living word explained the active word from Genesis to Chronicles to those two disciples. Or we can think of Ezra, uh, Ezra 7:11, where Ezra set his heart to study the word of God, to ferret out, to seek it out, to dig out all the truth therein, and to practice it, and to teach God's statutes and ordinances in the nation of Israel. These are examples and reminders that each of us have a responsibility to either receive the word of God or reject the word of God. And there is no middle ground. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. And this flows well in Hebrews because this magnificent epistle of Hebrews is a very unique epistle. It is a sermonic epistle unlike any other letter in the New Testament. Our passage here this morning are verses 25 through 29 of Hebrews chapter 12. And while this entire letter may have been one extended sermon, what we have here in our passage is a sermon within a sermon. 
the written word of God that we have before us. And I'll begin reading in verse 18 to remind us of what came right before our passage because at the end of chapter 12 here, beginning in verse 18, the author lays out a contrast between two mountains. The old covenant mountain of law and terror, terror, which was Sinai, and the new covenant mountain of grace and joy, which is Zion. And in verses 18 through 24, the author lays out God's unapproachable glory historically back at Sinai when God audibly spoke and gave the law, the Ten Commandments, to the nation of Israel. And then also that leads into his unparalleled grace at Mount Zion. Uh, So again, our passage this morning begins in verse 25. But listen, beloved, as I begin reading in verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 12, this is the word of the living God. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Beloved, This is the word of the living God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, what we will see in verses 25 through 29, within this sermon, within a sermon, there are four elements. The author, pastor, preacher begins with a clear proposition. Then he follows with an illustration, followed by an exposition, and then finally he concludes with an application. And even as we think of chapter 12, the author writing to his original audience of ethnically Hebrew Christians, or God writing to you and to me some 2,000 years later, he began chapter 12 by encouraging us to exercise perseverance, to stay in the game, to run the race to the end, to run through the tape, to look to Jesus, to war against sin to submit to the loving discipline of the loving Father, our loving Father in heaven, and to overcome weakness, to be strong and to beware. Here in verses 25 through 29, certainly those themes are all echoed, but also the author encourages us again to press on to a final faithfulness and to remind us to look at the present in the light of the future in the light of God's good word and God's good promise, all of which, every word, will not return to God void without accomplishing what he purposes for it. So, beloved, let's look at the first element of this sermon within a sermon, which is, again, the author begins with a clear proposition. Now, to understand what we have here, this is the sixth and final warning 
within the book of Hebrews. There are six warning messages. This letter to the Hebrews oozes with grace and encouragement and promise and hope. But punctuating through here six times are these powerful warning messages that come from a pastoral heart. And by way of reminder, let me just kind of walk us through this. You can follow with me and look it up yourself or you can listen as I read. But the first warning message came back in chapter 2. Chapter 2, of course, comes after chapter 1. And in chapter 1, the author opens up with this incredible treatise of the absolute infinite superiority of the Son. He is so much better than even the previous prophets. He is better than the angels. There are no exhortations or admonitions or commands in chapter 1. It's just a glorious treatise and tribute to Jesus Christ, to the Son. But then in chapter 2, verse 1, the author then begins with his first exhortation, which is the first warning. Chapter 2, verse 1, we read, For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Or turn over to chapter 3 or listen as I read beginning in verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Then he continues and expands even verses 12 through 14. Or we can pick it up in chapter 5, verse 11. The author wanted to introduce the subject of the priesthood of Christ, which is after the order of the king priest Melchizedek. But then in verse 11 of chapter 5, the author says, concerning him, Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And then he applies after this loving pastoral rebuke, Chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. And then he continues on even through the rest of chapter 6. Or chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Here, and actually... Verse 25 comes after verse 24. And in verse 24, the author says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And now the warning. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. And he goes on and expands even more up through verse 31. And then the fifth and penultimate warning in chapter 12, verses 15 and 17. And even using similar, the first similar three words that we have at the beginning of our verse 26, we see him say there in verse 15, see to it, see to it, that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. See to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. So that is what leads up to the final warning that we have in this letter, beginning in verse uh, 26. These are, these warnings some have said are kind of literary guideposts through this whole letter. They're clear, they're emphatic, and they are repeated. And this is the final warning. Again, now look at verse 26. He says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. The author does hear what he's done through the whole book when he refers to the Word of God, when he refers to the Bible, even when he quotes from what we have as the Old Testament, which was the entire written Bible they had at that time. He uses present tense. God is speaking even right now through the Bible. And this God speaking comes right after verse 24, where as we read before, that was the sprinkled blood of Jesus, which is still speaking today. The author wrote this some 25 or 30 years after the blood of Jesus was shed, yet at the time of the writing, it was still speaking. So also the sprinkled blood of Jesus is still speaking, beloved, still speaking, dear friend, now some 2,000 years later. And this wonder of God, of the eternal sovereign creator God of the universe speaking now through his word is certainly essential to our passage here this morning, is certainly essential to the entire epistle of Hebrews. And it's really essential to the entire scripture. And in fact, is not scripture God speaking to us? And even when we think of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews began with God speaking. Chapter 1 Verses 1 and 2, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portion, in in many ways, in various and sundry ways, as King Jim would say, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He opens up with saying that Jesus is the final consummate revelation of God, and God is speaking to us. And the situation that the original Jewish believing audience would understand is that the prophets had come upon the scene of Israel for many, many years. And the normal response of the majority of the Israelites was, we don't want this word. We don't want these harsh words from the prophet. We want nice prophets, cheery prophets, prophets who will tell us lovely things, is how Alistair Begg puts it. But The author's main point here for that audience, beloved, dear friend, God's main point to you and to me is that this book is true 
and you better listen to it. You better heed it. We better understand it. We better obey it by the indwelling strength of the Holy Spirit. That's why he says right here at the beginning, see to it. See to it. Be on your guard. Take heed. Take care. These are all different translations of this one Greek word translated as see to it. What he's saying here is continue to see to it. Stay in the game. Run through the tape. Don't let your guard down. It's a 24-7 command to you and to me. And this is ultimately the shibboleth issue. How do we handle God's demands on our life? How do we handle the good news of the gospel, which at the heart of the good news of the gospel is the bad news of our sin, that God is holy and righteous and we are sinful and we are in need of forgiveness. And Jesus Christ provides a way of escape. He provides a way of pardon. And the reality is that many people will say, well, when it comes to this word, when it comes to God speaking in the Bible, well, I'm, I'm too clever to, to really need that or to believe that. I'm too good to need that. Or some people would even say, well, I'm too bad for this to even have an impact on me. All of those are wrong to be sure. None of us deserve to understand. None of us does deserve to receive the blessings that come from the word of God. But that's where God's grace and mercy and the work of Christ comes into our life. Some people want the world, so they walk away from the word. And to be sure, understand, there is a direct connection, an inseparable connection between a deaf ear and a hard heart and a wandering life. And even, in fact, when we think of the right kind of hearing, let he who has ears to hear, hear. Christ repeated that. That was probably the most often repeated statement that Christ made that's recorded in the Gospels. Let he who has ears to hear, hear. He's not talking about the merely acoustic phenomenon of the sound waves traveling down the ear channel, vibrating the eardrum, firing off the synapses, etc. It's not a function of the ear that is really at stake here. It's a matter of the heart. It's a spiritual heart that responds to the word of God so that we believe the word of God, we accept the word of God, and we trust the word of God. Also understand this. The gospel is not an offer for consideration. It's a proffer of a command. The gospel is an ultimatum to either be received or to be refused. And there is, again, no middle ground. There's no spiritual Switzerland when it comes to our response to God's demands in the scripture. We either believe, accept, and trust, or we reject. And that is exactly what the author is saying here. See to it that we do not refuse him who is speaking. Listen and learn. Look and live. That's a common theme through all of Scripture and certainly a common theme through Hebrews. So that, beloved, that dear friend is the clear proposition that the author begins in this mini-sermon. And he now follows it at the end of verse 25 with an illustration. And it's interesting, when we look in Scripture of the example of the teachers or preachers in Scripture that use an illustration, sometimes they'll use God's creation. Sometimes they'll tell a story. Jesus used a fig tree 
as an example, illustration of a point that he's making to the nation of Israel. Jesus, of course, told parables to illustrate the point, parables with an explanation to his true disciples to help clarify the points he was making. And then very often, even within Scripture, we see the teachers within Scripture using Scripture, using the Old Testament as an illustration. That's precisely what the author does here. At the end of verse 25, he says, For... If those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. So when he talks about those who refused him who warned them on earth, the immediate reference would be, of course, to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai when they had God audibly speak to them, recorded in Deuteronomy Uh, 4 and 5, and Exodus 19 and 20, the law. And they refused the law. But even broadening out from that, their refusal of God and God's claim on their lives would include even the golden calf. It would include the strange fire. It would include all of these. But to refuse him, and point being there is, I mean, the golden calf, they were breaking all 10 of the commandments. That's horrific. That's blasphemous. The strange fire, the disobedience and the rebellion there was horrible and blasphemous. But to refuse him who warned them on earth is the greatest act of rebellion. It's the greatest act of apostasy. And what the author here does is he does what he's already done many times. He argues from the lesser to the greater. As significant and as severe as was the judgment on those people who refused and rejected God who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Him who warned on earth, him who warns from heaven. The location is different, but the speaker is the same. It's God. It's the voice of God. In the first case, the nation of Israel lost the blessing to enter into the promised land of rest on earth. But this rejection he's speaking of here, the one who rejects and refuses him who warns from heaven, even today forfeits the blessing of the promised land of rest in heaven. The eternal Sabbath rest that we read of earlier in Hebrews. So, beloved, God does in the Old Testament reveal his love and he reveals his wrath. And in the New Testament, he reveals his even greater love. There's a greater revelation of his love on this side of the cross and there's a greater revelation of his wrath as well. Very often people in Western Christianity think, or in Western Christianity or even people in the world will have a misunderstanding and say, well, the God of the Old Testament was more harsh. There was, a more, there was a severe punishment and judgment. That's absolutely not true. What we see here is, yes, we have a greater picture and revelation of the love of God that was shed at the cross in the man Jesus Christ. And also because of that, there is a greater judgment. There is a greater punishment. The greater the privilege, we teach our children this. The greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. So also, the greater the privilege, the greater the judgment is what God is saying here. And understand this. This is not a one-time defection. This is a continual rejection. The turn away, literally, the grammar, it's a 
present participle, the grammar literally says, they who are continuously turning away from him. So this is not a one-time stumble. This is not a one-time rejection. This is not a one-time falling away. This is the pattern of life. And beloved, from a macro level, what we see is in the case of believers, in the case of those who have been made new creatures in Christ Jesus, the Christian has a general submission, generally submits to the authority of the word of God. The unbeliever characteristically and generally collides with and rejects the authority of the word of God. Hence, this is a call to a final faithfulness. And even when we think of escape, uh, how, shall we, how much less shall we escape this? This is the same language that we saw even in the first warning passage that I read before. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 3? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So the first and the last talk about this great escape. And escape what? The wrath of God, the judgment of God is the point. And the situation is, the original audience, they were downgrading spiritually. And what the author is saying, he's saying, don't go back there. Don't return back to your uh, rabbinical ways of humanistic Judaism works salvation. Don't go back there. Live here. Stay here. Stay close to the grace and gospel message and once for all salvation that Christ has brought you. Don't think that using the imagery that Jesus taught don't think that biblical Christianity can be put into the old wineskins of rabbinical Judaism or having a timeless application to the Jew or the Gentile. Don't reject Jesus and think that there's another medicine that can deal with the disease of sin. There isn't. There is one mediator, one way of salvation. He is the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him, we know, as he taught, as recorded in John 14. But the point the author is using here with his argument of the lesser to the greater is since they didn't escape when they rejected the law, how could we escape if we reject the gospel? And the answer is, we can't and we won't. There's no escape. There's no hope. There's no forgiveness if we refuse him who is speaking, if he, we refuse him who speaks to us in the Bible. You see, the gospel is, the meaning of the word gospel, of course, is good news. But the gospel is terrible news for those who reject the word of God. But it is wonderful news. It is good news, even as the word means for those who receive the word of God. There is a way of escape. There is a way of pardon. So the author began with the proposition. He gave that illustration. Now he follows it with an exposition of a passage from the book of Haggai. And what the author does here is he reminds us that God is not only the creator of the heavens and the earth, he is the mover and the shaker of the universe, and his judgment is coming. His cleansing and purging, which he promised, is coming. Look at verse 26. <clears throat> the author writes, And his voice shook the earth then. Pause there for a moment. In Scripture, the central metaphors that 
God uses to picture his judgment are fire and earthquake. Uh, For example, in Exodus 19, again, the immediate reference that the author is citing here was when God spoke to the nation at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, 18. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. That was when his voice shook the earth. Or Judges 5, 5, The mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord. This Sinai at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. So his voice shook the earth then, continuing on here in verse 26. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And again, he's going from the lesser to the greater. And he's quoting from the second word of Haggai, specifically Haggai chapter 2, verse Six. Uh, the book of Haggai is quoted once and only once in the New Testament, and this is where it is quoted. Uh, Haggai was a post-exilic prophet. He prophesied to the nation of Israel after they had been released from their 70-year Babylonian captivity. Some 50,000 Israelites came back to the promised land to start rebuilding the temple at the decree of Cyrus in 536 B.C., But what happened was they came back and they began to do the work that God had called them to do to rebuild the temple, but they got distracted. And God raised up a man, Haggai, and Haggai prophesied about four months in 520 B.C. And he was a man of one message, two short chapters, four words of Haggai in the two short chapters. He had the one message, which was rebuild the temple. And in the providence of God and in the economy of God, 23 days later after he began prophesying, and his uh, first word is all of chapter 1, the leaders of the nation got stirred, and then the people got stirred as a result, and they began to build the temple. But then what happened was they went from being a distracted people to a discouraged people. The first word of Haggai in chapter 1 was a word of rebuke to a distracted people. The second word of Haggai in Haggai 2 verses 1 through 9 was a word of encouragement to a discouraged people where God wanted to give them words of encouragement. He wanted to give them words of reminder of the fact that he would assure the building of the temple, that he would assure them and give them encouragement that he will win in the end. He gives them commands in the first five verses of chapter 2. Be strong, work, Fear not. Look to the promise of God. And then in verses 6 through 9, God says, I will do this. I will, I will, I will, I will. And one of those I wills is precisely what the author of Hebrews quotes, which, by the way, there's a commonality here. Remember, Hebrews chapter 12 began with God telling the audience, telling you and me to be strong and war against sin. That's the same kind of language that God gave to the nation of Israel through Haggai at that time. And what we have in verse 27 of Hebrews 12 here is the divine commentary, the divine exposition of the author of Hebrews when he explains what God meant by what he had prophesied through Haggai back in Haggai 2.6. Look at verse 27. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things. 
This is the cleansing and the purging. Yet once more, he's talking about a divine earthquake. So just to make sure that we understand the timing here. So God spoke to the nation of Israel around 1440 B.C. at Sinai. Some 900 years later, Haggai to the post-exilic nation references that first divine earthquake, that earthly earthquake. And he says there is a second divine earthquake coming where God will shake not just the earth, but the very heavens themselves. This is Genesis language. This is a complete, total, all-consuming, far-reaching cleansing and purging that God will do. And Haggai said it is coming. Now we go forward Uh, another 600 years, and the author of Hebrews cites that and says it's still coming. You and I read this now some 2,000 years after that, and it's still coming. And beloved, one of the interesting, couple interesting things about earthquake, this is part, I think, of why God uses this as a primary metaphor for his judgment, is in a earthquake, you can't escape its fury. And then another aspect physical aspect of earthquakes is they could happen at any time. They're unexpected. And even Haggai, when he made this prophecy, when God wrote the book of Haggai, again in 520 B.C., the Hebrew grammar there basically has a sense of imminence about it. In other words, this second divine earthquake where God will shake not just the earth but the heaven, it could happen at any moment in time. But then some 600 years later, it hadn't happened yet. And the author of Hebrews captures the same thing. You and I read this now. Yes, it's been 2,000 years after that, but it still could come and happen at any point in time. We are not like those in the world that would say, where is the promise of his coming? Don't things just keep on going the way they're going? And use that to ignore the word of God. We understand that this could happen and fall at any point in time. And this urgency is what the author uses to shake us out, so to speak. You see, the world needs cleansing. The world needs purging. The world, dear friend, as you know it, as I know it, is not the world which God made. The world that we experience is the world as man has polluted it, has corrupted it. That's why the author, that's why Paul, excuse me, when he was writing to the church in Rome, in Romans 8 said, the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. The world is in need of cleansing. And that's why God promised to the nation of Israel and Haggai. That's why God promised to this group of Jewish believers and Hebrews. That's why God promises you and me as we read these words of life in Gilbert, Arizona, that he will come, he will cleanse. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. And even that shake, shaking, picture a dead tree with dead leaves, or picture a tree with dead leaves, and it's being pummeled by hurricane force winds that basically strip it bare. That's the kind of imagery that God is talking about here with this cleansing and this purging of the entire universe. And basically, the God who created is the same God who will cleanse. And there's no room for shakable things. All the dead leaves will be removed. That's why in verse 27, he says removing. He's removing all the shakable things to make way for the unshakable things. Because the world in its corruption, everything trembles in the throes of its pollution. The form of this world is passing away. We understand this. Things 
wind down. Things wear out. Metals rust. Clothes wear out. A cloak is rolled up and put away. Everything changes, deteriorates, and passes away. That's why in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, even as we sang one of the beautiful sayings, songs we sang, talked about the sky will wear out. The sky will be rolled up like a scroll. Isaiah 34, verse 4. All the hosts of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine, or as one withers from the fig tree. Or John, the apostle, in his vision on the Isle of Patmos, in the book of Revelation 6, verse 14, the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Beloved, understand this. This great cleansing sets the stage for the consummation of our redemption, for the completion and consummation of our salvation. Look at verse 27 again here in Hebrews 12. In order that all these shakable things, all these created things will be pummeled away and removed in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. And what's unshakable, beloved, is eternal. This echoes the theme of the changelessness and the immutability of God, of Jesus. Back in chapter 1, that was one of the highlights the author brought out about the nature of Jesus Christ, the nature of the Son. In verses 10 through 12 of Hebrews chapter 1, this is what the author wrote. Thou, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. Verse 11, they will perish, but you remain. And they all will become old as a garment. And as a mantle, you will roll them up. As a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. So the very changelessness, the very immutability of God, that he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, is the foundation of these promises, the nature of Jesus Christ himself. And this stability of God provides a foundation for the security of your safety and my safety in resting, in standing upon the good promise of the words of God who warns us and encourages us and speaks to us from heaven through the Bible, through his word. And of course, John at the end of Revelation, Revelation 21, verse 1, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. The removal of the temporary shakable things of the old earth prepares the way for the eternal, unshakable new earth. The Removal of the old heavens sets the stage and makes way for the new heavens, the new heavens and the new earth that are at the center of the final promise of God. And this is, again, the consummation of our redemption. That's why it even ties in to God's great words of encouragement to you regarding your future resurrection into glory. In 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 52, where Paul writes these words. They may be very familiar to you. They might be new to you. If they're new to you, listen to what God promises those who trust him. In a moment, 
in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. Beloved, that is the good word of God. That is the exposition that the author gives us. He has the proposition, illustration, exposition. Finally, we finish in verses 28 and 29 with a very strong application. And what he's bringing out here is along the lines of reminding us again to look at the present in the light of the future, to be mindful of our blessings and the responsibilities we have here, us as citizens of the United States or Canada, our passport's uh, Canadian, if I'm pointing the finger there. So we have a, a U.S. passport, a Canadian passport, but we have a passport in heaven. This is describing the sanctified homesickness that every believer should have of longing for our true home, even as we came out of the stellar examples of faith of the men and women of old in Hebrews chapter 11, they were longing, they were looking to a city of lights, they were looking to the city of God rather than where they were at. So in verse 28 he says, therefore, here's the application, since we receive, literally since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, this is the kingdom of God, the unshakable kingdom, the eternal kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Back in verses 22 and 23, we had a picture of this already. This is a kingdom, this is a city that is populated with an innumerable number of people, of believers, with a myriad of angels, in a joyful assembly. This is... We, we pray, Lord, may thy kingdom come. May thy kingdom come. May thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will will be done in that joyful assembly which awaits us. And by God's grace and mercy right here, right now, the will of God can be done in his church here even now. And we are receiving this unshakable kingdom. And part of the reason, beloved, the kingdom of God is unshakable is because it's a purified kingdom. Every shakable thing, every created thing, everything that in any way, shape, or form has been stained by sin, by defilement, by corruption has been removed. This is the outflow. This is the blessing of the even severe cleansing and purging that we were looking at before. This is the same kind of dynamic that God prophesied through Daniel. In Daniel 2, verse 44, Daniel said, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. It will endure forever. It's the same promise, the same kingdom. And we are receiving this. We're in the process of receiving this. And even as Jesus taught us, we are to pray for it to come. It's a both and. We enjoy it and have it right now. And we are still continually receiving it. And we are praying for it to come in its fulfillment. It's a both and, an already here and a not yet come. Bottom line, we are moving towards a destination that we can't see. Again, remember one of the key elements of faith, as was elaborated on back in chapter 11, is that it's, we're moving to a destination, we're moving to a city, we're moving to a kingdom that we can't see with physical eyes, but we see with eyes of faith. So 
because we can't visibly see it, it requires faith. And this good news for the believer is not merely fire insurance. It's motivation for the present. It's not merely fire insurance for the future. It's a motivation for the present right here and right now. Look at the rest of verse 28. He says, let us, this is still from the therefore, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service, acceptable worship, not with superficiality, not with triviality, but with reverence and awe. And the gratitude, the thankfulness in our heart for understanding what we deserve, which is eternal punishment in hell, and being reminded again and again of what we have coming to us, which is eternity in heaven forever and ever with Christ. That is the impetus. That is the driving force for our acceptable service, for our acceptable worship. And what he's saying is don't hesitate in price compare. Don't think about how it hurts in the present. Think about what it holds for the future. And then Finally, it's interesting and it's fascinating, the author, as he wraps up this sixth and final warning message, as I mentioned before, this letter oozes with grace and mercy and comfort and encouragement, and it's punctuated strongly with reminders that we don't become numb and blind to the wrath of God. Look at verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. Uh, If you like to memorize verses, Here's an easy one to memorize. For our God is a consuming fire. Jesus wept. For our God is a consuming fire. Beloved, this is the white heat of the purity of God. And by way of application, by way of context, again, at the broader level of this whole passage, dear friend, you either receive his word and escape his wrath, or you reject his word and you endure his wrath. You either receive his word. We either continually receive his word, not perfectly. We stumble, we wrestle, we we seek to understand, but we continually receive his word and will escape his wrath forever and ever in the joys and glory of heaven, or we continually reject the authority of his word and we will endure his wrath in the horrors of hell eternally. And for us, The certainty of his impending judgment motivates us in Christ to continue receiving his word today and to offer acceptable service worship. May we, beloved, be God's people hearing these truths and heeding these truths, understanding these truths, embracing these truths, the promises and the warnings. May his word be our rule. May his spirit be our guide. May his glory be our goal. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you that you speak today. You speak from heaven. You encourage from heaven. You comfort from heaven. You warn from heaven. Speak, Lord, in, and in your word. This is in and solely and only through your word. Speak, and in the stillness while we wait upon you, Lord, instruct our minds, stir our hearts, challenge our wills save our souls and direct our steps for your glory and lord god for anyone here this morning anyone listening now or listening or watching later that is not trusting in you alone by faith alone lord let them realize and own up to their rebellion 
Let them flee from your wrath. Let them run to you. And we praise you and thank you, Lord Jesus, that you promise that anyone that comes to you and truly asks for forgiveness from the heart, anyone who places their faith in you alone, that you would receive them to yourself, adopt them into your family, make them a new creature in Christ Jesus where old things have passed away and new things have come. May all of this be true for your glory and for your honor, Lord, in each life. And it's in your name and for your glory that we pray and that we sing and that we depart from here with this good news. Amen.